Some of you know this week in the Dallas courtroom, the world watched and listened in total shock and awe to the words and actions of an African-American young man whose older brother was brutally murdered at the hands of a white American police officer last year. Former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger came home tired one night last year and entered what she thought was her apartment. She encountered a black man on the couch eating ice cream and watching TV. Startled and fearful, she took out her revolver and fired two shots, killing him in cold blood. Soon afterwards, she realized she had entered the wrong apartment and shot an innocent man. This week, after five hours of deliberation and weeks of a jury trial, the jury found her guilty of murder and she's been initially now sentenced to 10 years in prison. It's customary in such cases for family members to speak to the convicted defendant who took the life of their loved ones. The 18-year-old brother of the murder victim said something that few people expected to hear. He said he loves the former officer who was just convicted of killing his beloved brother. He said he forgives her and he wishes her not to rot in prison, but to find God and giving her life to Christ, he said, would be the best thing that she could ever do. And then he did another thing, totally unexpected and stunning. He turned to the judge and he asked if he could please hug his brother's killer. The female African-American judge granted his request and he got down from the witness stand and went over to Amber Geiger, the white female former police officer who killed his brother, and the two hugged for about two or three minutes and wept and wailed before the watching world. There was not a dry eye in the court. Even the judge began to wipe tears from her eyes. And then the judge, moved perhaps by the compassionate example of this brave young man, she went to her chambers and returned with a Bible and offered it to Amber Geiger. And then the judge embraced her and the weeping began again. Now if this is not an act of gracious justice, I don't know what is. So charged is the racial tension in our country that Usually, such cases of deadly police brutality are marked by violent protests and destruction of property. Thankfully, apparently, this was not the case this week. But sadly, people are already lining up on both sides of a debate to debate the unusual display of amazing grace and mercy and justice that was displayed in the courtroom this week. Some say that she should have gotten more than 10 years when compared to other African-Americans who did lesser crimes but got more time. Others have sharply criticized the compassion of the judge and this young man in the courtroom. They say it was not professional and may have been unjust because no murderer deserves such treatment. But you see, the sharpest critics are those who have not yet experienced the amazing grace of God. 
Or maybe it's been a while since they have experienced the grace of God, and so they've forgotten what it's like to stand in need of forgiveness. Uh, They've been blinded by their own self-righteousness. I believe God wants His people to seek biblical justice, which is an overflow of the grace that we have already received. Today I want to return to the teachings about justice taught by our Lord Jesus Christ in the four Gospels. Do you remember the man that we often call John the Baptist? Well, he was imprisoned by King Herod for preaching against the sins of the king. And while he was in prison, John's disciples would come to visit him and provide for his needs. And one day during a visit from his disciples, John was curious about Jesus' identity because his disciples kept going on and on about all the amazing things that they saw Jesus doing and his profound teachings. And so John said to his disciples, listen guys, go find that dude Jesus and ask him this question. Are you Israel's long-awaited Messiah or should we be looking for another dude? When his disciples finally caught up with Jesus and asked him John's question, here's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Matthew 11, beginning in verse 4. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Now, what do all of these people have in common? They're all of a certain class of people. They are among the unfortunate class, the lower class class, the poor class, the despised class, the untouchable class. The middle and upper classes of people look down on the lower classes of people. It happened in the days of Jesus and it happens in our day today. In fact, one of the reasons was because in those days, The reason that the upper class often looked down on the lower class was because in those days it was common thought that if you were in the lower class of society, it must be because you did something to deserve it. Many people thought that it was a punishment or curse from God to end up blind or lame or leprous or deaf or poor or dead at a young age. You might recall another passage in the New Testament Gospels where this man was blind and he was out begging. And the disciples and Jesus was walking past this blind man and and he started shaking his tin cup to receive some alms, some, some gifts for the poor. And Jesus stopped with his disciples and the disciples turned and asked Jesus this profound question. Which, by the way, one of my children asked me after the big tsunami and flooding of uh, many years ago in Asia. The disciples said to Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of the sins of his parents or was it because of his sins? 
See, that was the thought of the day. That if something was radically wrong with you, that ended up you were lame or poor or blind or sick or whatever, it must be because you deserve it. And so what is Jesus doing by answering John's question about his identity in this strange way? Without directly saying, yes, I am the Messiah, Jesus pointed to the works that only the Messiah could do. More importantly, Jesus pointed out the character that motivates the Messiah to do such miraculous works on behalf of such people. The idea that the Jewish Messiah was willing and able to so closely identify with the lower classes of people was mind-blowing. It was not expected. Jesus' answer completely shifted the false narrative of the day that every lower class person is in that miserable condition because they did something to deserve that curse from God. And so by healing the blind, the lame, and the deaf person, and by touching the leprous and the dead persons, which, by the way, was forbidden in Jewish law, our Lord Jesus demonstrated gracious, restorative justice. If we aim to be true followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must also demonstrate gracious and restorative justice to those in the lower classes of society. But we will not do so unless we learn to first identify with them as he identified with them. That means we must get close to them. We must get proximate enough to have some sense of what they feel and how they feel and what the real circumstances are that create their predicaments. And then and only then will we be used of God to help alleviate their poverty and their suffering. And so a question for us is, with whom do you and I most identify and spend time with? Is it only people that are in our social class, people that are just like us? Whose pain and suffering are you trying to alleviate? Let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Matthew 9, 10 through 13. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Do you remember the man called Levi, the tax collector by the other gospel writers? Well, here, many Bible scholars believe he calls himself Matthew. Levi may have been a nickname because this Matthew came from the tribe of Levi. Jewish tax collectors were considered dirty, rotten scoundrels and traitors of the Jewish people because they cooperated with the Romans in collecting taxes for Rome, the hated enemy of Israel. 
The tax collectors were notorious for enriching themselves by charging more taxes to their own people than the Rome, their handed enemy, required. But Matthew was convicted by the Holy Spirit in his encounter with Jesus, and he repented, and he became a follower and a disciple of Jesus. And so Matthew threw a big dinner party, and guess who were the honored guests? Jesus and his disciples. And guess who felt comfortable crashing the party to hang out with Jesus and his disciples? Many other hated tax collectors and sinners, Matthew says. Now, two questions immediately come to my mind. Number one, first of all, who would be the holy, or why would the holy Jesus hang out and have dinner with low-life scums like these tax collectors and sinners? Why would Jesus, being so holy, perfect, and righteous, why would he hang out and have dinner with the low-life scums of Jerusalem? and Judea and Samaria? And secondly, why would these low-life scums want to hang out with Jesus and his disciples? That ever occurred to you? The answer to the first question is this. Jesus' holiness is coupled with his love and gracious justice. His love compels him to be proximate to those who are most in need of healing, those who are broken in more ways than one. And his holiness is not compromised by his proximity to brokenness. But those who are broken can be made whole by his holiness, by his love and his gracious justice. Now for the answer to the second question. The tax collectors and other sinners felt comfortable in Jesus' presence because he did not exude an attitude of self-righteousness and judgment. Notice the negative response of the Pharisees to this big social and religious no-no that Jesus did. They're like, how come your teacher eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, huh? Doesn't he know any better? Because, you see, that was not done. That was like a (gasps) moment for some quote-unquote righteous holy man, some prophet and miracle worker, to hang out with traitors and sinners. You see, the erroneous religious conviction of the Pharisees was that if religious people hang out with sinners, then the religious people would become Sinners too. They saw sin like a virus that could easily spread from sinner to infect the righteous. But Jesus was convinced that the opposite could also happen. In other words, it was the mission of the righteous to go after the sinner and to offer them the cure for their sin. That's why Jesus said in verse 12, hey, look, dudes, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, go back to school and learn what Hosea meant when he quoted God saying, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've come to call the sinner and not the righteous. Amen. 
In other words, if you think you're too righteous, chances are you're not, but you're not going to hear my call because I'm calling for the sinner. So if you think you're too righteous, you don't need me. You don't need the grace and the mercy I offer because you think you're too righteous. You, you already got it all together. That's why you don't hang out with the folks who don't have it all together. And Jesus is like, y'all got it twisted. If you got it all together, if you so holy, this is exactly where you need to be, to helping other people and showing them how to get holy, if you so holy. How are you going to have the cancer, the, the, the cure to cancer, and keep it to yourself? Who's crazy enough to do that? If you've got the cure to cancer, you're out there trying to help people that got cancer. Last few years, Kanye West and his wife Kim Kardashian have been in the news quite a lot. Not sure what to make of their new Sunday services, but it could be that God may be at work in their lives. Last year, Kim Kardashian heard the story of a black woman from Tennessee who was convicted of federal charges of drug trafficking and money laundering, and she was sentenced to life in prison for that crime. And Kim thought that that was just way too harsh a punishment to fit the crime. And so she contacted the president's daughter and son-in-law, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, and asked them to petition the president to commute her sentence and to pardon her. Alice Marie Johnson had already served 22 years of her life sentence. She had no hope of parole unless a president of the United States heard about her and had mercy on her and ordered her clemency and pardon. Well, after a careful review of her case by the White House team, the president did have mercy and ordered Alice's clemency and full pardon. This case opened the eyes to the president and his closest advisors to the need for sentencing reform in our criminal justice system. And so the president ordered his staff to work on a criminal justice reform bill to present to Congress, and they did. And it passed both chambers of Congress last December with a solid bipartisan support. And since last December, when the president signed the bill into law, thousands of incarcerated men and women have been granted early release from prison with significant time reduced from their sentences, and most of those were African-American men. All because someone who normally doesn't rub shoulders with lower-class people decided to listen and learn about one case of injustice and then use their influence to do something about it. Nobody does that without first understanding at least a little bit about their own need for gracious justice and getting proximate to those in need of gracious justice. Let's move on to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, 11 to 16. Luke 7, 11 to 16. Verse 11 says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And then the Lord saw her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. And they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This account looks like just another miraculous sign that Jesus gave as a clue to his messianic identity. While that is true, if we look closely, we will find more clues to the fact that Jesus is very much concerned with various issues of justice. Let's begin with verse 11. Notice Jesus is traveling in the region of Lake Galilee, and he's traveling with his disciples and a large crowd. Because of his miracles and profound sermons, Jesus had earned a large following. People would drop whatever they were doing if they knew he was nearby, and many other people followed him from town to town to see his wonder-working power and to hear his moving messages. Verse 12, as Jesus was approaching the gate of the town of Nain, a funeral procession carrying the body of a dead person was coming out of the town gate. That's the first clue. A dead person was in the funeral procession. Second clue, it was a young male body. Third clue, he was the only son of his mother. Fourth clue, his mother was also a widow. Luke is dropping some clues for us to help us see how much our Lord Jesus cares about issues of justice. And I'm going to explain to you how all these clues become issues of justice, and they were issues of justice. Another interesting detail Luke includes here is that the funeral procession was made up of a large crowd who was with the widow, end of verse 12. Now, these four clues are significant because what Jesus does next and these clues reveal the incredible heart for justice that our Lord Jesus has for the hurting. Luke tells us in verse 13 that when Jesus saw this poor weeping widow, that his heart went out to her. And he also spoke to her saying, lady, lady, please don't cry. Now, why would he say that? Because he knows what he's about to do. And then Jesus touched the coffin, and that stopped the procession. And then Jesus spoke to the dead man as if he was just sleeping. 
and commanded him to get up. And check it out. The young man obeyed the voice of Jesus like a good boy. And he sat up and then started talking. At which point Luke says Jesus gave him back to his mother. Don't you wish you were there to see the face of this precious mother reunited with her son on the way to his gravesite? And then to see the look on the faces of those pallbearers and the crowds of mourners. But let's get back to these significant justice clues. In the first century world, it was very difficult for a widow to provide for herself, let alone her children, without the income of her husband. Most women did not work outside the home, and the work they did inside the home did not earn them an income. But a widow had hoped to survive and possibly thrive financially if she had at least one son who was of an age to work and provide for her and the rest of the children. You see, in those days, there was no government social security and no life insurance benefits to claim. A woman's social security was her father and her brothers before marriage, and then her after marriage, her husband and her sons. But Luke gave us several clues to let us know that this woman was now destitute. She was a widow, so she had lost her husband's income. And now she had lost the only son she had, which in essence was her only hope to avoid being destitute. There's no mention of any other close male relative who was able to support her. And so Jesus sees this as an unfortunate and unjust situation. And once again, I want you to think this through and see this pattern that we've seen in other Scripture passages. Verse 13, Luke tells us, when Jesus saw her. What does that tell us? Jesus once again got proximate. He got close enough to see the pain written on her face, to hear the sobs of a mother's heart, to see the tears rolling down her face. And then he learned more about her situation, that she had been widowed, and now she had lost her only son, her one and only son, her only hope for survival. And it was then, and only then, that Jesus reached out and touched her son, healed him, and gave him back to his mother. Doing so was an act of gracious justice for this poor widow and bereaved mother. Remember years ago when I, when HIV and AIDS were relatively new and the public didn't know much about it and there was a lot of fear about being infected with AIDS, I was a young assistant pastor at Moody Church and I remember being asked by some members of the church to visit friends or relatives of theirs who had AIDS and HIV and were in hospice or nursing homes. And, and I remember preparing for these visits with these passages in mind and telling myself, I must get close enough to touch these people and while reading Scripture and praying with them. And so I did. And all I can tell you is that it meant the world to these people who are now living with, at that time, was an uncurable disease. 
and they were ostracized from our society. And many of them left alone to die. And I remember going in and just touching them and holding their hands and reading scripture and praying with these people newly infected with AIDS and HIV. And all I can tell you, it meant the world to them and they felt human again. They told me they felt like their dignity was restored because a pastor, a man of God, touched them and spoke to them with tenderness and without judgment. See, a few decades ago, people with AIDS or HIV were like the lepers of the first century, who were the untouchables in their day. So the question for us is, who are the untouchables in our generation today? And are you and I willing to get proximate to them for the sake of Christ and his kingdom to extend a tender touch of gracious justice? Okay, one more scripture passage and we'll close. John chapter 4, verse 27. John 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? This is the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. Some of you know the story. Some of you don't. We don't have time to read the whole passage, so let me summarize it for you. Jesus and his disciples were traveling from the city of Jerusalem, heading north back to the region of Galilee. Scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, most Jews in that day would not go through Samaria, though that was the shortest route to Galilee from Jerusalem. And the reason they didn't go through Samaria, but instead they went around Samaria, was because most Jews were racists. They hated Samaritans, and Samaritans hated the Jews. They hated the Samaritans for two primary reasons. They were not full-blooded Jews, but half-breeds through intermarriage with Gentiles. And as a result of that mixing of race and culture, they also corrupted the Jewish faith and religious practices. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans. But in Jesus' way of thinking, those were not reasons to hate the Samaritans, but to love them enough to tell them the truth and to seek to win them over. And so that was the first issue of justice that Jesus wanted to confront to teach his disciples God's way towards biblical justice. The second reason Jesus had to go through Samaria was to confront the unjust treatment of women. In Jesus' day, women had severe restrictions outside their homes in public life. They, they didn't have too many rights, and their testimony was not permissible in court of law because it was thought to be unreliable. And so Jesus sat down by a well just outside this Samaritan town of Sychar because he was hot and tired after the long journey. He sent his disciples into town to buy lunch, and a woman from the town came to draw water at midday because almost no one else did so at that time. It was way too hot. She, however, was a woman of ill repute. She had a reputation of being morally loose, even for Samaritan standards. She lived in shame, and so she, had, she came to the well during the low traffic hours when she wouldn't have to deal with the crowds and encounter people. 
But on this day, she encounters a man, and not just any man, a Jewish man. But not just any Jewish man. On that day, she met Jesus, the Messiah. And he completely changed her world and her worldview. He broke all the social norms and cut through all the pride and the prejudice between Jews and Samaritans and between men and women. And of course, Jesus also taught us how to love those who are considered the worst sinners in society. And that's why his disciples were so astounded when they returned and found Jesus talking with a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. And I'm sure they later learned that she was a very sinful Samaritan woman. But the good news is that the disciples learned that day and the few days they stayed in Samaria, according to the text, they learned that the gospel truth is so powerful. It is able to break down any and every wall that separates us from God and us from each other. John tells us that this Samaritan woman, once she repented and believed the gospel, she became an evangelist of the whole town, and many Samaritans put their faith in our Lord Jesus Christ because of the truth of the gospel that was at work in her life. The gospel produces acts of graciousness, acts of gracious justice that breaks down walls of unjust negative stereotypes and brings hope for change, hope for healing and reconciliation between lost people and God and between low-class people and everybody else. And may God produce in us, every one of us, acts of gracious justice whenever and wherever we encounter injustice. And nobody says it's easy, by the way. Jesus didn't tell us it was going to be easy. It is hard sometimes to be kind and loving to those people who are not nice people or who are not loving people or they're not lovable in our eyes. And it's risky to love such people that are so different than you. But Jesus does not qualify who we should love and who we should show grace and justice toward. He doesn't say, do it. If it's easy for you and it's convenient, do it. He doesn't say, oh, well, if they're like you and you like them, and then do it. No. There's no qualification. It is, matter of fact, it's really just the opposite. If it's hard, if it's smelly, if it's, if you're going to look crazy and foolish, that's probably where you ought to be because that's where I am. It, it doesn't seem intuitive and natural. It feels uncomfortable, and it is uncomfortable, and it is hard. That's the work that God has called us. And when we begin to do that, the grace of God shows up, and miraculous stuff happens. In fact, social norms will change. 
Social movements begin when God's people show up and do the hard things, taking risks, even risking their lives, risking their possessions, risking their reputations for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of doing gracious justice. May God help us. Let's stand as we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed, this is God's time to receive worship for those who have received the Word of God in their hearts. What is your response to God's heart for justice? And what are you doing to extend a hand of gracious justice to those in need? You'll never do it until you first experience the gracious justice of God by faith in Christ. When you become forgiven of all of your sins and the grace of God is poured into your heart, when you recognize what a dirty, wretched sinner you are and you deserve eternal punishment, but God, by His grace and mercy, reached out and sent His Son to die in your place. You deserve the cross for your sins, not Him. And yet He died in your place. You deserve that death sentence, not Him. And He took it for you. When you receive the grace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord, then you'll have grace to give, to extend to others. So maybe you're here today and you need to be saved. I want to invite you after the service to just go through the middle arches in the back of the sanctuary there. You'll find some deacons waiting for you to talk with you about salvation. Others of you, maybe you've already been saved, you've never been baptized. We'd love to talk with you about Baptism. There's something about baptism. It doesn't save us, but it is an act of obedience. It's a step of obedience in the right direction, a step of saying, I am yielded to the will and the way of Christ. And we'd love to schedule a baptismal service for you. Then there are others of you who are looking for a church home. We'd love to talk to you about the next membership membership. Learn what it means to be a member here at UBC and to join hands and hearts with us. Maybe some of you are here and you just need to confess your sins to someone here today. Maybe you just need somebody to help you, pray with you and lead you to the throne of grace where you might find forgiveness of some sin. Maybe it's some sin of injustice that you have been carrying out and the Lord has convicted you in these series of messages. You have been acting and thinking and harboring thoughts of injustice and you need to repent. The offer of forgiveness is open for you as well today. So, Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the good news of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and justice. And we pray that you would be at work in each of our hearts, that we 
would become more like you. So forgive us, cleanse us, and help us to be obedient to your revealed will to us today. And we'll be careful to give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.